Welcome to a new episode of the brand called You. Today we have a really really senior consultant, advisor, personal friend and someone who I've always looked up to, Arvind Singhal. Arvind, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. Thank you very much Ashutosh. Arvind is uh, from IIT Roorkee. He's an MBA from UCLA. Um he founded Technopack, an organization that I did work with also. Um he's specialized in consumer products and retail, textiles, food services and agriculture, education and skill development. Arvind is uh, a speaker, a columnist, a board member and a, and an advisor. I know I have gone to Arvind many very often to seek advice. So Arvind talking first about Technopack. After you decided to start Technopack, what was what were some of the milestones in your journey? And why did you decide to start consulting firm rather than join a McKinsey? So <clears throat> let me go back. I started Technopack in January 1992. But the reason to start that was something which was so as I'm concerned rather fortuitous. Mm-hmm. I joined a particular organization as an employee yeah. in 1985. I was very idealistic without using the word of working for the shareholders and mm-hmm. not necessarily for an executive who might be right. senior so I had my own set of run-ins with my immediate boss mm-hmm. and one fine day after 5 years of putting in hard work shifting to Amritsar where it was still the peak of Punjab problem mm-hmm. through a henchman I was told that you are fired wow and I was asked to vacate the company's accommodation is to stay there was a company phone which was taken away and my colleagues were told not to give me any favors it was that bitter mm-hmm. so that happened in march of 1990 and i had decided then a few very simple things i'm never going to work for anybody else in my life <laughs> we i will have my own house I will not ever live in a company accommodation. Mm-hmm. I will never have a company car, and at that time, never a company telephone. Because these are such basic things in life. Telephone was and, a big thing in those days. Yeah. And if your life support systems are taken away from you because they don't belong to you, then uh, you know you're left helpless. Yeah. What to do? Having said so, it was easier said than done. Uh, my salary was about. Seven thousand odd rupees, and one of the many reasons given to me why I was sacked was my boss had not given me increments or some insulting increment for hundred, two hundred bucks. And I said, "Look, I don't want this increment. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. If I was working for money, I would be elsewhere. And these are peanuts. I'm not interested." He got very offended that how dare I refuse an increment? <laughs> I said, "That's my choice to say no." But I had no savings. I had no money. My dad was. Still a serving IS officer, an honest man at heart, if I may say so. So we had no money; we had only good education to go by. I did have to work for a year and a half because I didn't know what to do, and I didn't have any money either. I had a young child of about six then, so it came to so one condition which I put for my then employer. Somebody came up, look, I'm going to live in Delhi only. I'm not going to go to a factory again. There was a family accommodation; I'll stay there. Blah blah blah. Whatever it is. 
And then I realized, you know, there was nothing like venture capital, seed capital uh, in 1990s. Even the notion of borrowing money was not something which was usual yeah. other than friends and family. Yeah. And no friend and no family member ever had the money <laughs> which I needed to start a business. So I actually did not start with a consulting company, although I founded a consulting company. Uh, but it obviously expectedly would take some time. My previous employer, not the one who fired me, but the one thereafter, became my first client. And uh, they paid me very well. So I discovered you make more money as a consultant than as an employee. <laughs> I hope my colleagues don't listen to that yeah. in my own office. But, but you know, I did all kinds of fun things in the first two or three years. I traded mannequins. I traded chemicals. I traded textile products. I traded machinery. The whole objective being that, look, how do I make some money? month-on-month month basis mm. to able to run the office. Three of my colleagues joined me from one of my previous employers. They did not take any salary for 18 months. We all lived on our meager savings and resources. But yes, office expenses were being taken care of through this trading activity while the consulting company sort of took roots. So A, I never wanted to be a consultant. Right. Right. We, I never aspired to join a consulting company. But I knew that the only business I can start with does not require financial capital. And this term intellectual capital was an alien term. Mm-hmm. It came into our jargon much later. Mm-hmm. But I felt like I'm pretty well qualified. I spent the previous six years of my life in the textile sector, which is India's largest yeah. uh, industrial sector. Yeah. At that time in 1992, it was the largest export earner for the country. Mm-hmm. We practically had nothing else to export but textiles. And I said it's a sector which requires a lot of modernization, it requires a lot of modern thinking. So my UCLA and US experience came in handy in terms of the thought process and nothing else. So that sort of laid the foundation of a consulting company. But yes, when you talk about McKinsey, my aspiration certainly was to be seen in the same light as a McKinsey and Company. So it's not in terms of revenues, it's not in terms of scale, but if I'm saying look, McKinsey respected, I must also have the same respect as far as my company is concerned. Therefore, your quality, your thought leadership, uh, the way you conduct yourself should not be second to anyone. So the benchmark was certainly McKinsey. The benchmark was not the few mm-hmm. Indian consultant. So that is the start. So what goes into making a good consultant? I mean, you said that, you know, uh, there is thought leadership. Yeah. Uh, there is respect for the consultant. How do how do you manage to uh, embody all these factors into a consultancy organization and into your consultants? Difficulty, and there is no standard uh, template for being a good consultant. There are zillions of consultants from individuals to fixers. Sure. Middlemen, yes. they all call themselves consultants yes. to companies at the other end of spectrum like McKinsey's and the BCG's yeah. and the Bain's and yeah. those As far as I'm concerned, my journey of these 27 years, the reason why we have been able to find a certain niche for ourselves. One is entrepreneurial thinking. The areas we have chosen to is more about, if say, dreams and creating wealth rather than managing pain. 
let me explain to you a bit more about this. There are companies who will say, the look, I'm in trouble. And then you get uh, a chainsaw out. Yeah. You start cutting costs, you start cutting people. And there are many companies and they're needed. Mm-hmm. There are some who actually are there because the law requires you to be there. Mm-hmm. So the audit accounting forms. Yeah. So that's also there. They're needed, but they specialize in a certain way. I chose myself, <clears throat> have been a dreamer, still a dreamer. So why not work with those companies who are dreaming of something more to do? So without using the word strategy or forward integration, those terms have been picked up over the years. Yeah. It was very simply, this is what I'm doing. What more I can do? The easiest thing for me to then think is if I was to do that myself, given these circumstances, what would I do? Yeah. So it is not trying to tell the client what he wants to listen. It's about telling the client what you think is the right thing to do. This is one message I keep telling all my colleagues, senior colleagues even now, that your clients are not hiring you, at least they don't hire us, to basically like an echo chamber. So you don't have to look at a client's face and then basically figure out what he would like to hear from you. He's hiring you for an opinion, right. advice. Right. He's got every right to reject it. Yeah. But please be honest yeah. in giving what you think is the right advice. That's number one. B, do not recycle any information. Even if you've done a project three months ago, go back to the basics once again. Maybe circumstances have changed. So our recommendations or advice are not based on a template. It's about going back to the field again. So there are these few things. The third part is generally true. Always keep your client interest first. Uh, You be your own arbiter of quality. And if you think that you have fallen short before the client tells you, look, I'm not happy. You yourself apologize and go back and then say, I can do something more. These are some of the things. So, you know, the general uh, perception of a lot of consultants, not not you, because I've also worked with you, is that uh, you hire a consultant in two cases. Number one is when your senior management is looking for endorsement of their view to present to the board. So they present it like that. Or second, if you're looking for a way out to solve some kind of a problem where the consultant comes, gives you a report and leaves. And, you know, as a manager, I've done my work, I've got a report. Now, whether it's implemented or not is not the issue. So we go back to you know, ground zero all over again. What are your thoughts on such consultants? I would only say that uh, at least we are very fortunate. We haven't come across any such client who says basically just to give a report to present to the board or just I'm doing a job because neither we are so cheap that you can get away by filing the report. Nor does our brand carry that kind of a weightage that the board can get impressed because Company A, B, or C has told us that. So I'm realistic about our. And, and you're one of the few consultants who rolls up their sleeves and actually gets into the trenches. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's really true. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I'll give you a small things and I'll come back then. But what do I talk about other consultants? I should be saying more about those. Yeah. yeah. But one of the many things which I imbibed in our company, we have no dress code, which is a technopack dress code. 
I've come across a particular famous company's uh, list of things to do to a new journey, which even specified at that point in time the kind of underwear they should wear. Okay. I'm not kidding. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, the only joke internally was maybe the clients take their pants off so often <laughs> that they have to be particular yeah. about the underclothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but our thing is very simple that we should not be seen as outsiders. So if the dress code of a particular client is very formal, you better be dressed formally. ITC is one example. Mm-hmm. We go to Charingi to make a presentation to the then chairman and his board. You have to be making sure that you are well dressed to look like a consultant. Mm-hmm. There are others who actually detest consultants. They hire them, but they don't like the consultants. They make jokes. Mm-hmm. I make as many consultant jokes as they make, mm-hmm. some more. Mm-hmm. But then if casual shirts and trousers are the dress code, yeah. with one particular client, a very large one, Mr. Mukesh Ambani and Mr. Manoj Modi, we are doing some work. In the first meeting, I was not sure what should I wear, so I matter of precaution. I put on a jacket and a tie. And uh, Manoj Bhai just said, Let's see, jacket can be guilty. I just took it off immediately, it unrolled my ties. After that, I've always worn mm-hmm. white shirts, tan trousers, mm-hmm. no third thing. The whole purpose being that you are seen as a part of the organization. Correct. You are not seen as outsiders. You can spend a consultant for a mile. Correct. Correct. Now, what others do, it is their business. So yep. I really can't comment upon them. Understood. I can only say that we need to be ourselves. Absolutely. And we need to be different than others. Correct. The good old Maggie. Add many many years ago sauces. Mm-hmm. It is different. Yeah. What's so different? We don't know, but it yeah. has to be different. Yeah. yeah. And you have your own secret sauce. Whatever it is, but they are very simple sauces. You know? Like Aye. you know, uh, if you are honest to your client, your client is generally speaking is the one who's your uh, sort of giving you the money. So how can you do anything wrong to mm-hmm. just tell a viewpoint which is not based on hard yeah. work? Yeah. Right. So, so moving on, um, you know. You're doing so much work in several sectors and some of them are really priority areas. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, uh, say, food and agriculture. Um, Is the agrarian crisis that is uh, talked about in the last few years real? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So let me just a quick comment on on the sectors which, now, as an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. as a person who still owns 100% of my company, it was my choice to choose where I want to work in. Way back, I go back to 1982. Mm-hmm. Almost no Indian used to come back from the US. Yeah. Uh, it was the done thing yeah. to just stay on. Yeah. I did not even wait to collect my degree, mm-hmm. much less go through the so-called commencement mm-hmm. session. Mm-hmm. I knew that I've done well. Sure. Degree will come by post. I just backtracked for a few months in Europe and elsewhere. Joined the same company. Mm-hmm which I had left at the same salary which I had left. 1992, textile was chosen for this reason rather than electronics and communication, which is my core engineering. Not that it is sexy to be in uh, software at that time, but textile is something which I can align my fortunes. But if I can do something good, it's good for the country. Without articulating as many words. All the sectors we have chosen, have a huge amount of a social impact. Correct. The large sectors, the unorganized sectors, they can do with fresh thinking. I mean, that's the motivation when it goes to that. Right. When it comes to a gaining crisis, like many of the crises in the country, most of them are self-made. Uh, that's the tragedy of India. That it's not that we are 
caught into a war. Countries got caught into a war mm. in the first war and the second war. Or there is something bad about the climatic conditions or something you can't do much about it. Whatever else. Mm. We are blessed with opportunities. We have been blessed with opportunities. And we just don't understand the root cause. So a draining crisis, number one. The irony of India at this point in time is that the more we produce, the more the crisis will enhance. Mm. Not So anything, anytime anybody talks about production increase, productivity increase, you say the farmer's price is going to come down next year more. Mm. We cannot consume even as much as we are producing. We are producing by and large. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Now, the second aspect about the grading crisis is we cannot export. It is a wishful thinking. Barring one or two categories which are unique to India from a GI point of view like Basmati rice. There is very little we can export because we have not done the structural reforms we should have done 50 years mm. for land consolidation. Mm. Traceability. You cannot export any edible product out of anywhere in the world. Mm. If you do not have the full traceability, right, not to the level of seed, but the particular farm, and you should be able to get into your futures where you can say that, look, six months later, I should be able to get X million tons out. When you have land holdings which are so fragmented, even if you make cooperatives, they're good for domestic consumption where you don't have traceability yet yeah. uh, by law, uh, okay. at least at the grain level. Mm. But exports are basically a pipe dream. So countries which are not so particular about traceability, might you can get away by something. But by and large you can't do that. So a grading crisis has a root cause which to me, whatever I've studied in this last 25 years, but before we got into some consulting area, it has to be understood first, reform at that level rather than keeping on changing their minimum support prices and mm. uh, fewer. So what you're saying is a grading crisis is more because of excess production. We have excess production, we have excess number of people engaged in farming. The output is very low for that reason. There is no economy of scale. Now, what it means is like this, you can still produce the same by using less of resources. Means less land and India is deficient as far as land in many parts yeah. of the country are concerned. Less water and potentially less fertilizer. Mm. So the so good part is that if you actually consolidate, yeah. You can do with much less yeah. and release those resources for other use which are needed today. If I can use the term educate, educate parents because Indian parents are also overly ambitious and aggressive about uh, making sure that their children are uh, somehow or the other finish their undergrad because undergrad means now you're eligible for a job and then frustration sets in. It is not the parents fault. Mm -hmm. Again, this is where the role of government, I would still use the word, is to come out with a campaign to give dignity to what would be seen as manual labor. In our country, we have so many kinds of caste systems. Yeah. Yeah. So even in vocations and professions, in today's context, there's a hierarchy of aspirations. Why would somebody want to join civil service? And I'm not talking about IS or IPS mm. or IFS, leave them aside. This obsession, because in the hierarchy of minds in small town India, if you work with there, it is perceived to be more aspirational. Okay. And everybody is not a crook who joins it. Yeah, yeah, That's a very superficial absolutely. way of saying that. Yeah, absolutely. So, but basically, if not romanticizing, 
or glamorizing, mm. at least giving them the right dignity yeah. that a carpenter is needed by the society, yeah. a cook is needed by the society, a hairdresser is needed by the society. I can talk about 1000 locations mm. like this. We, we don't do that. Second aspect in India's case, because we never encouraged emergence of big employers, sector after sector after sector, this mentality of small scale has killed India, it's still killing India. Mm. Retail is one example which can employ almost every large country, the movement of people from farms either has been to manufacturing and that was again largely spurred by the first world war and second world war mm. when we look into the west mm. where manufacturing effort had to be ramped up at the cost of everything else. Yeah. So men, women, even children were inducted into the workforce. Mm. India supplied only manpower to the first and second world war but not manufactured output the way it should have done. In today's context, or let's say with USA, after the war was over, 60s onwards, significant part of the workforce and especially women workforce went to retail. Even today, after healthcare, healthcare just overtaken uh, retail in the US in terms of the largest employer directly and indirectly. If you do not have the vision, you're still discussing single brand retail, yeah. multi-brand retail. How do you get these people out of the jobs? Yeah. Now, those are also vocational jobs as far as the retail sales assistant is concerned. But beyond this, what we need today, we don't have chains for hairdressers. We don't have chains for those 20 other kind of things. So you can't get jobs for these people even if they're vocationally trained. The point I was trying to make was you have to create those vocations with self-employment, interlinked, not encourage migration. What it therefore means if you are in the Northeast, your vocational training has to be built partly around tourism, partly around food processing, partly around the local infrastructure. You train somebody into a job which is in the uh, software industry, let's say, and there are no such large employers there. Yeah. It's a wasted training. Right. This is what is happening. I've seen near Rani Khed, ITIs, still teaching mechanical engineering and equivalent of electrical. There are no factories. Yeah. So even what we are doing today in vocational training is A, not understanding that we need to create micro-entrepreneurs. Mr. Modi has talked about it, mm. but action on the ground is far from him. It's not about giving money. Okay. It's about giving them the know-how, okay. how to be a micro-entrepreneur, mm. but it has to be localized. Yeah, understand. So again, very interesting segue into the next question, which is, you know, you've done a lot of work with entrepreneurs, startups. And yet we have, on the one side, we have Prime Minister speaking about Startup India. You're saying that the right kind of startups are not happening in the, around the, tech, the, the, the skills that are available in our country. What are some of the mistakes that a lot of startup entrepreneurs make? Uh, because we also know 9 out of 10 don't work. So firstly, many of the people don't realize there's a difference between becoming a small businessman and a real entrepreneur. Yeah. Somebody who, in the most basic sense, buys vegetables from the wholesale market mm. and puts up those one of those Vyapar Kendras, yeah. you can call him an entrepreneur, he's just basically a businessman and we need zillions of them and most people are capable of doing that, mm. most. Very few are able to create value out of nothing. This is to me the definition of an entrepreneur. It's an idea. Uh, it's, uh, it's not about better execution of an idea. It's about an idea which is original in some way. Yeah. There is a solution which is original in some way. 
maybe in terms of process, in terms of production, in terms of marketing or whatever else. Mm-hmm. And that's what create value, if I may say, is automatic. <laughs> Sadly speaking, majority of the entrepreneurs who I come across, and mm-hmm. I do come across a few, mm-hmm. uh, because of this cherished relationship with Thai as well as with Indian Linguist Network. Mm-hmm. They are, you know, people like us who know what photocopying machines used to be mm-hmm. 30, 40 years ago, mm-hmm. where you make a negative and then you make a positive. So the 10th copy out of the negative was a smudged coffee. Copy. Yeah. Completely smart. Yeah. Right? Most of the ideas which I see today are those 10th version of that photo stack. Completely smudged ideas copied from China now, earlier copied from the USA and elsewhere. No context to how they will work in India. That is the first advice to any budding entrepreneur. Please be original. India has its own set of challenges, own sets of opportunities, and it needs own set of solutions. Correct. So do not get inspired too much about what you see anywhere else in the world. Correct. We are large enough to have our own set of problems. Yes, absolutely. We don't have to look at somebody else's problem to I solve. Agree. Agree. The second aspect which most entrepreneurs don't understand is finally you have to make money. Do not just get so obsessed with your idea which doesn't have the smell test so to say. Is somebody there out there to pay some value for it or not? And if they are willing to pay, how much are they willing to pay? Yeah. And whatever they are willing to pay, if they are willing to pay, is your cost of delivering the product or service lower than what they're willing to pay? You'd be surprised, Ashutosh, how many people have not thought of it. Have not even thought of that most basic thing. Yeah. No wonder why the failure rate in India probably is higher mm. than it might be elsewhere in the world. Really? Wow. Okay. Because out here we have friends and family still who chip in. Mm. Uh, you don't have to go to the very hard work of raising the first hundred thousand rupees or a uh, million rupees or something else. Very interesting. So moving on, Arvind, into some more personal questions with you. Uh, 27, 28 years of experience as a consultant, very, very successful, recognized in India, outside India. What is the secret of success? And failure both. I've had my failures. I'll come to the failure. I'll come to that also. I'll come to that also. See, I don't know there is a secret for success. I think it's... I think everybody who is successful in some form or other in the world oh. pretty much does the same thing. Mm. You know, honesty is something which is in multiple dimensions. It's not only fiscal yeah. dimension. Most people just think honesty means only one dimension. So you could be honest to your customer. You could be honest about selling what you're selling. Don't overpromise. Don't oversell. You could be honest to your clients, mm. your employees, your other associates. And this is not something unique. It's not a secret. Mm. I think almost all successful people by and large in the world in their own way and whichever domains they are in, they don't have to be in business. Mm. That is one aspect. Second aspect, I think, especially in business context, is very important that you have to keep reinventing yourself. So what I was doing in 1992, what I'm doing in 2019, and I have my version 6 of my company ready in my mind for 2021. Amazing. And it is... Uh, only one of these versions was forced upon me because I went through serious problems in between, still coming out of it. So the 2021 version will be a much more positive version where again I'm reinventing completely. Okay. Right now it is about yeah. uh, sort of stabilizing yeah. and going ahead. Yeah. But reinvention is something which is uh, ideally speaking you should do it yourself. Mm. Rather than being forced by circumstances is far more difficult mm. to do so. So whichever, as an individual I recommend to people reinvent yourself. You have done it so successfully in so many interventions since I've known you. Mm. Companies have to reinvent themselves. Yeah. 
So that's a second part, but how do you re remain relevant? Mm -hmm. Don't look back on your yesterday's laurels. You have to earn your new laurels, so yeah. to say, every okay. single day. Okay. And coming to the next question, which has become like a, a signature question I ask all my guests. Um, what is your biggest learning from your biggest failure? So, I think all of us <clears throat> should take pause. And I, when I mentor people, I tell them the same thing, but I forgot the same advice I give to others for a short period of time. Take a pause, figure out where you want to, where you are, where you want to go, why you want to do it. Ask this question number one. B, you are the best judge of your strengths and limitations. Nobody else can ever tell you yeah. as good as you are. Yeah. Uh, there. So, till about 2006, whatever I did in my life, mm. And I'm not boasting. Everything worked out as expected or better. Even if I made mistakes, in hindsight, they turned out to be the right decisions. I got too arrogant about my own capabilities. And my own success is like a Vidas touch. Not financially. Again, I'm clarifying this. Yes. It's not to be measured only in the realm of finance. Correct. Correct. But whatever I did, studies, relationships, hobbies and interests, you name it and I, whichever direction I took, just pretty much worked out the way I wanted it to be or even better. I forgot my limitations then because sometimes your success masks the fact that look, you are still having flaws. What were my flaws? And I want to link it to, you send me a question about work-life balance. Mm. I practice it without using the term work-life balance mm. ever since I was a child. Mm. Means I had multiple interests in life and I enjoyed it and I knew what the trade-off is, which means that I never came first in my class, but I was always in the top five or so. Because very early on I realized to be number one, you have to be single-mindedly focused upon being there. And then you have to shut everything else away by and large. But if I enjoy reading, if I enjoy playing, if I enjoy music, mm -hmm. if I enjoy gardening, and from a childhood I'm talking about, mm -hmm. then I cannot be single-minded. I cannot do the work of five people. Mm -hmm. I'm still that one person. Mm -hmm. And right through in Technopark also everything else was the same. I did it my way. I love that song from Sinatra. Mm -hmm. there, yeah. I did it my way. The only one time I did it my way without realizing my limitation that I expanded or tried to expand too rapidly. In between 2005 and 2008 when I bought my equity back from Kurt Salman Associates and I completely missed the part that look my limitation is I cannot give single minded attention only to one thing. Mm. My mind is still moving in running kids, my mind is still moving in five other things. So I overstretched without realizing that, look, this is the moment if I'm overstretching, I need to put more personal attention in time. I'll let go of that. So the message again, from a learning for me, certainly lesson learned the very hard way. But to all other people, please be honest to yourself, understand who you are. Yeah. Don't try to do things which are not part of your capabilities. And within that limitations and opportunities or strengths, if you stay within those boundaries, you will always do well, subject to what those boundaries are. 
You try to move out, you could suffer like I suffered. Wonderful. I think that that actually seems to relate to a lot of things I do because I also do many, many things. But Arvind, uh, thank you very much. I think my wish is that you continue to do things your way. Because that's the only way to live life. That's what I believe. So thank you again for coming on our show. Thank you very much. Thank you for all your wonderful words of wisdom. And I'm sure everyone who's watching us is going to really enjoy hearing you. Delighted to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brand Called You podcast. Be sure to visit tbcy.in to join the conversation, access show notes and discover fantastic bonus content. You can follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Simply search for The Brand Called You. Thank you and see you next week.